Welcome to another episode of Ready Teacher One. I'm Adam Mangetta. And I'm Ryan McLaughlin. And with us tonight is Lindy Hockenberry. She is the founder of Integrated Professional Development, as well as the author of A Teacher's Guide to Online Learning, Practical Strategies to Improve K-12 Student Learning. Lindy, we are so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So let's see, where do I start? Um, I'll start with my, my education background. So I taught middle school and high school. And then by random life happenings, that's what I always tell everybody, because it was literally random life happenings. I ended up working in kind of curriculum development and professional development uh, with this personal finance project that I worked with. That kind of led me down that route. And I really enjoyed the professional development side of things. Um, then that kind of led towards working as a technology integration specialist. So kind of the same thing. And I should mention too, when I taught in the classroom, my classroom was the computer lab for the entire small school that I taught in. So I kind of always had this quote one-to-one, you know, it wasn't called that at the time. I don't think maybe it was, I had never heard the term one-to-one at the time, but I always had a one-to-one classroom because my classroom was the computer lab. Uh, Because I taught business education. So it was funny. I always had like the high school English kids would like be coming in my room and typing papers while I was trying to teach a class, you know, (laughs) because it was the only computer. And that was way before, you know, carts, laptop carts and Chromebooks didn't exist at all, like not even close to exist at that point. So that was the only technology access we had in the school was my classroom. Um, So anyway, so kind of that background with the professional development led me to working as a technology integration specialist. And I worked for Southwest Montana School Services. So we kind of covered the Southwest part of the state. And I went and worked with a lot of different schools and teachers and I lead trainings and do all sorts of good stuff. And then I kind of just saw this need of teachers needing help with technology. And especially I live in Montana now. And we were just talking about, I grew up in Florida, the first half of my childhood and in Montana, the second half of my childhood. And then I stayed in Montana as an adult. So in Montana, we're so rural that all these little tiny schools have, there's no way they can have a technology integration person or an instructional technologist on staff. So I kind of went off on my own and I started going in and doing coaching and trainings with those teachers and providing those services to those, especially those smaller schools, sometimes larger schools though, that just wouldn't have it otherwise. And so I've been doing that since about 2014 now. So that's, that's my niche. That's what I love to do. I love to work with teachers, love to help teachers figure out how to use technology in purposeful and meaningful ways to enhance learning, basically. Fantastic. That's really neat. Lindy, we, uh, we talk often on this podcast about how different technology is in the classroom now, even as opposed to really just three or four years ago. The, the changes have come across so rapidly, and so many teachers, I think, are, are struggling to stay up to speed. Tell us a little bit about uh, what your job and what your work is like now and, and how it's different now in 2021 as opposed to 2014? Yeah, good question. It changes a lot every year. Uh, I always tease that 
when I started working as a technology integration specialist, it was like 2011, 2012. That was right during the iPad craze in education, sure. right? Like iPads had just come out and schools were buying them up because they're like, they could see mm-hmm. the potential, right? And they're like, we need to get this and we need to use these and we can see the potential. So there for a while, I was just known as the iPad girl because I was doing so many iPad trainings that everybody just started calling right. me the iPad girl. And then that changed and all of a sudden it was like Google. Google, 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 Google. Everything was Google. You know, there for a few years, it was like everything is Google. And then all of a sudden that kind of changed. And I started to see the tech, instructional tech world diversify and the ed tech world diversify. And then, and start to see how schools were seeing technology more from a bigger lens as not just an add on, not just so let's roll this iPad cart into our classroom once every couple of weeks and do a random project. Like, this actually needs to be integrated into every single day, right? That we do, we need to develop a totally new workflow for our classroom um, as a teacher. You know, I can, I'm no longer having my students turn in papers to the box, right? Instead they're submitting stuff online. So that's kind of the shift that I see is like, just depending upon what technology was available, like the need to support that has kind of changed. And then the last few years, I've seen more, like I said, more bigger picture, more working on like our school has a learning management system and we need, teachers need to learn how to use it to be the home base for everything in the classroom. And then started the shift started happening for things like AR and VR, right? I started seeing a lot of requests for, okay, we're starting to buy these VR headsets and we don't know what to do with them. Or we see the potential in it, but we don't know what to buy. Can you help us? You know, that kind of thing. So that's kind of what I see now is just so many different opportunities. Um, And then of course, COVID threw a wrench into all of that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. On the subject of AR and VR, because that's a that's where we tend to spend a lot of our time here on this podcast. It's something that Adam and I are both passionate about. Um, we have encountered a lot of teachers and a lot of administrators in our conversations with people who are, I think, a little bit uh, once bitten, twice shy on a lot of ed tech stuff, right? I, you meant to mention multiple waves. I always think back to, I guess it was probably about 10 years ago now, um, when smart boards were the big craze and when that was going to change everything. And then people actually tried to use them in the classroom and it turns out it wasn't uh, all it was cracked up to be, right? Um, but now Adam and I talk to people and we say, hey, listen, we think that immersive technologies like AR and VR are going to radically change education. And we kind of get this look from people like, yeah, yeah, okay, maybe. Um, what's different about AR and VR from previous waves of ed tech in your opinion? Or what can be different, I guess, perhaps would be a better way of phrasing it. You know, AR and VR really have the potential to completely disrupt how we do education, right? More so than most other technologies out there right now that we're using in education. Like I said, a lot of technologies, if you're Google or Microsoft 365, or you have a learning management system, you know, in your school and you're you're doing those types of technologies, Yes, those technologies are moving the learning tasks digital and a lot of the times making those tasks um, 
either augmenting or redefining those tasks in some way, right? Like we're able to collaborate with people across the world now where we couldn't do that before, even via video conferencing. You know, that kind of thing can really redefine the way we do education. Um, but it still is the student in the classroom, in the four walls, looking at a 2D screen, right? right. Now let's add AR and VR there and we're moving to a 3D space. This opens up so many possibilities. You know, the biggest thing with learning is you want to learn when you experience something. I always use the example of traveling. The first time I went to Europe, I just, so many questions, right? And I got so interested in, and this was as an adult, I got so interested in European history because I experienced it and I saw the old buildings and I learned about the British history and the British monarchy and you know, all of these things. And I went to Ireland and I learned about their history and it sparked me to want to learn more. So experience something sparks learning. And I think that's really where VR, especially virtual reality has the potential to really disrupt education, to give students the opportunity to immersively experience something without actually being there. You know, we can't all afford to take our kids to Europe on right. trips, I wish, right? But now we can put a VR headset on and we can take a virtual tour of Westminster Abbey. And, and, and that's going to spark so many questions and so much intrinsic motivation to want to learn. And I think that's where AR and VR really has the opportunity to disrupt. Not to mention, I'm talking about AR and VR in terms of what we know it as now. We don't know the things that are being developed. I go and I research like the future of VR, if you just search the future of VR, the future of AR, future of AR, VR, whatever you want to do, the things that come up, you're like, blow your mind, you know, because yeah. think about it, 20 years ago, the concept of virtual reality blew our mind. Now we have it. And it's the concept of where yeah. virtual reality can go blows your mind. So I think there's just so many possibilities in education that we just haven't even thought of. We haven't even scratched the surface on in terms of VR. Lindy, you know, uh, there was there was clearly, um, you know, a lot of schools that were kind of caught with their pants down during uh, the pandemic. And, you know, it seemed that most folks, uh, you know, pivoted to Zoom. Do you think that we're ready for um, a fully virtual reality school as an alternative to Zoom school? What do you think might be the barriers to that? And for teachers, what are the advantages to teaching in a, uh, in a VR school versus the checkerboard of faces that we're seeing here tonight? Great question. I, okay, well, let, me, let me unpack that a little bit. There's a lot of pieces there. To start with, too much of anything is not good right? That's always an argument against technology and education is, well, we can't just have our kids staring at screens all day. That's never the goal. No, no, we never want kids staring at screens all day. There's no arguments here, right? There's a happy balance with everything. It's just like eating healthy. You know, you always hear, do it in moderation. I always tell teachers, like you don't need to integrate technology. Your students don't have to do every single thing online or on, you know, digital, I should say. And same with online teaching. I was telling teachers this during COVID when schools were shut down. I talk about it in my book that even though you're teaching online doesn't mean that your students have to be doing everything 
online, right? Like everything digitally. There's so many things you could do, have students step away from the computer and do non-digital tasks and you should, we need that happy balance. So I say that to answer your question in terms of um, if we were to have a fully virtual reality school, I think that possibilities of that are amazing and you could do so many things with it. Does that mean we're going to have a kid with a headset on eight, nine, 10 hours a day? Absolutely not. Like, I think that that is like anything, you know, we know that virtual reality is fatiguing and being in that type of environment can be fatiguing. So we don't want that. The same as we don't want, like what happened during COVID with kids being on Zoom for eight hours a day. That is not great. Zoom is fatiguing. Virtual reality is fatiguing. So too much of anything is not great. But what I do see happening is schools using, like we have this capability right now, by the way, um, Mozilla Hubs and Frame are two examples of virtual environments that doesn't have to be in a virtual headset. So they can be done in a web browser as well. But you can do like Mozilla Hubs, I know you can do in a headset where you have students enter this immersive world or view and you can make it look however you want in some cases depending upon the tool and like the audio is spatialized and what that means is you might have a room over here that's for group work and anybody that walks in that room only hears the audio in that from the people in that room so if you walk out of that room you no longer hear that audio you might hear the audio from the great room where all of the maybe the teachers in the great room right but there's groups of students learning in little pods Uh, So things like that are already happening. But again, do I think that should be what students are doing for eight hours a day, Monday through Friday? No, but I think there is a super, super niche spot for it for sure, especially now with so many schools moving to remote, virtual, hybrid, blended models, depending upon the school. Absolutely. Absolutely fabulous. So so the inverse of that question is what has jumped the shark? So what are we never going to do again in schools? Um, you know, what, what is, what, what has, uh, what, ha, what have we kind of put a fork in? What, what is, what, what, what do we have RIP 2021 on in the education business? <laughs> I've, well, okay. Are you thinking just like, well, I think we should have RIP written on. It can, be, it can be, it can be wishful thinking. But you know, if if, okay. if if you uh, if you if you were a betting lady and you said, "Hey, look, uh, I just don't see this being sustained in education anymore after uh, the current year," what what might what might be done? The first thing that comes to mind is having kids on video calls for eight hours a day, Monday through Friday. I hope here, here. that there is a huge gravestone on that business <laughs> that it never comes back because that's horrible. There needs to be a balance yeah. in online learning and it can't be all synchronous eight hours a day, Monday through Friday. Like you just can't, you have to find a balance there. There needs to either be, there needs to be some asynchronous work um, or you need to change the schedule. Like something has to happen. You can't do that. It's awful. If you as an adult have ever tried to be on a video call all day long, it is so exhausting I have had days like that with work even. So you're getting getting at this really interesting idea that Ryan and I talk about, but it's the decoupling of learning from uh, babysitting, right? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about that. 
you know, I talk about that in my book as well. And I've talked to this, so many teachers in schools I've had this conversation with over the last year and a half since COVID hit is you have to educate, people have to be educated, parents have to be educated that even though your student is virtual online and typically they would maybe be at school from eight to three every day, right? And they're occupied eight to three every day. When you move that to a remote environment and your kid is at home and they're not leaving the house, they can't be babysat, as you guys said, or watch. Like you can't, a school cannot do that from eight to three every day. And the, uh, an exercise I do that kind of puts this in perspective is I say to teachers, schools, whoever, educators, all right, take and write down a schedule of, an, of a kid in an in-person school that starts at eight, ends at three, whatever. Write down every minute of what that kid does. Okay, now after you write that down, take out the transferring to different classrooms, going to recess, going to lunch, standing in line, uh, you know, moving around to do group work in the classroom. Once you do that, it takes an eight hour school day and it whittles it down, right? You're down to sure. maybe three hours. It depends on the age of the kid. Younger kids like K-1-2, you're probably going to be down to like two hours by the time you put snack time in there and all of that stuff. Sure. So th that is instructional time, right? So then taking that and then saying, all right, now we're going to do eight hours of instructional time on video calls every day doesn't work. And it doesn't work for any age. It doesn't work for elementary. It doesn't work for middle school. College it students, school. adults. It doesn't work for high, higher ed. It doesn't work for adult learning. It doesn't work for any. I, I get antsy on Zoom after about an hour myself. I totally understand that for sure. Guys, this podcast won't be an hour. I'm just giving you a little. <laughs> 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 That's such a, that is such an exciting point for our listeners, because I think many of our listeners understand that, um, you know, online school is growing, brick and mortar school numbers seem to be flat. And so when we think about the anatomy of that perfect cadence between asynchronous and synchronous, and, and I think that that was a really helpful tool, which is let's subtract all the things that aren't direct instruction and aren't kind of student-centered learning. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that cadence? Where, if we were just to think about asynchronous learning, what are the what are the big coaching points that you might share with our listeners about how to design an optimal asynchronous experience to balance with that synchronous instruction? Mm, great question. This is one of my favorite topics. If you know, if anybody knows me, they know I love to talk about asynchronous we, learning. We do our homework here at Ready to Share. Okay, good, 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 good. I uh, I had this question so many times, and I have, by the way, I've heard this so many times over the last maybe six months from schools that asynchronous doesn't work. Asynchronous, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. If it doesn't work, you're not doing it right. And there is a way to do asynchronous right. And there is a way to do asynchronous wrong. And if asynchronous April, doesn't work while your school's giving out homework, right? That, you know what? <laughs> I have never thought of that, but you're absolutely right. That must mean you don't exactly, have homework. That is, you're absolutely right. That is exactly what it is. But the difference between with that is that kids are going to school eight hours a day and then having to go home and do asynchronous work. Right. Versus with true virtual learning, that asynchronous work is built into the day. It's not an add-in, right? At the end of the day type of thing. So yeah, so there's definitely a way to do it right and wrong. Um, 
I have what I call like my, uh, I'll do like asynchronous lessons or self-paced lessons. I saw this Twitter feed the other day or Twitter stream that was like, what's one where like what you were saying, like, what's one thing you want to just say, never hear again over the next year. And one of the things was asynchronous or synchronous because they've heard that so much over the last year and a half. So if you're one of those teachers and you're like, really, if I hear asynchronous one more time, I'm going to lose it. Don't call them asynchronous lessons, call them self-paced lessons. That's really what they are. They're self-paced lessons, right? So I have kind of this diagram I use. It's like the elements of a self-paced lesson, right? And you have to make sure that you have all these elements to set students up for success, especially K-12 students up for success, that especially K-12 students that have maybe never done any self-paced work before, depending upon what type of classroom setting they've been in, they may have only experienced very rigid direct instruction, then do this, right? Maybe do this and then do a worksheet. And they're told everything to do, how long they have to do it, very, very structured. So to take that student and pluck them into a self-paced lesson, you need to do things like set up pacing guides and tell them each, the this lesson should take, I take an, a, a minimum time approach you could also take an average time approach. I find it easier to come up with a minimum time. Sure. This lesson should take you a minimum of 20 minutes or 30 minutes, right? And then even breaking that down within the elements within the lesson. So, you know, now you're on the learning resources. You should spend a minimum of 10 minutes reviewing the learning resources. So building in those pacing guides for them. Um, it's kind of like a way of helping them self-assess, right? You're building in those supports to teach them that metacognition and to teach them how to monitor their own learning. So things such as that, and just making sure that you're giving lots of choice with asynchronous because uh, students want to be able to choose what they're doing. Right. So doing simple things like choice boards, so easy. It really doesn't take that much more time. If you have a solid learning objective and a solid rubric of some type to grade that learning objective, you can give your students tons of choice of how they show that learning objective, right? Um, making it very creative. So asynchronous lessons as a worksheet probably are going to bomb with K-12 kids. I'm not going to lie. And they're going to be as successful as homework has been the last however many decades in the U.S. So anyway, I could go on and on. But yeah, I have kind of this these elements of asynchronous lessons that I that I lay out that sets up the teacher to make sure you have all these different parts that you need to do. Oh, another, I'll mention one more thing, because I think this one's important. When COVID first hit, and I was starting to hear from these teachers, like kids just aren't doing their work. I don't know how to get them to do it. Or they're turning in work that's half done, or they're turning in work that's not even close to done. I said, well, are you telling them what done looks like, right? Because you're not in the classroom. You're not there over their shoulder anymore to say, Hey, Johnny, I see this is only half done. You still need to do this and this. So since you're not there physically, you're not in proximity with the student, tell them what done looks like and just have a simple checklist. Done looks like this. When you have done this and done this, you are done. The other party that that helps in virtual learning are the caregivers, right? The people that are helping parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever you are, babysitters, nannies um, that are helping kids do their work they can now look at that and say, oh, this says you need to have this on slide 10. I don't see that you have that done. Let's do that now. So it empowers those caregivers to know, because that was another thing I heard from parents 
was we don't know if our kids are done with it. We don't know. Like, how do we know if they're done with their work? They're telling us they are right, but we don't really know. So it helps them as well. That's a, that's a powerful set of points, Lindy. Um, I'm just curious if, if a parent comes to you and says, Hey, uh, you know, our family just got this brand new quest Two or some other VR headset. Um, I would love for there to be, uh, some educational experiences that we acquire, uh, you know, in addition to just letting kids burn off their energy on Beat Saber or what have you. Um, what are the first few things that you recommend? And uh, maybe if it's different, what are some of the first few uh, apps or experiences that you recommend for schools that acquire new headsets as opposed to parents? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. When I'm talking with schools, what I do is depending upon the exact tool and the exact headset or whatever it is, I always try to start by finding a simple, simple, simple app, whatever it is that just goes over the basics, especially with a tool like virtual reality, where you as the teacher can't see what students are seeing in most of the cases, um, just helping them set up for success. So I kind of have this outline I go through when I'm working with teachers and telling them, here's how you can successfully set up technology in your classroom. And number one is you introduce the tool and you just have a very basic something, like a lot of VR apps will have a learn VR app where it literally just kind of walks them through the basics and just set a timer. So you put them in there and you give them 10 minutes even, maybe 15 at the most, 15 at the most. And you just let them explore, right? And they, and that, what the other thing that that does is it gets out that, that excitement when you put a new technology into kids' hands, right? They're so excited. They can hardly stand it. If you, if I were to take and put a VR headset into a kid's hands and it's the first time they've touched it. And I say right then and there, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to do this app and you're going to do this. And then you're going to do this and this and this and this and this, right? And so I'm immediately like directing them to the learning it's probably going to be unsuccessful and I'm going to get frustrated because the kids are too excited to focus on that learning right then, right? The other thing that happens in that scenario is I always say, lay the tracks before the train can run. And in other words, when you're introducing a new technology to students, you need to have them explore and experience that technology first, right? So they know what they're doing. They know how to use it. They get that excitement out. Then you can redirect them to the learning objective because putting a brand new tool and really technology is an instructional tool, right? That's all it is. It's an instructional tool. It's a tool right. we use to reach learning objectives, putting them, giving them a new tool and immediately trying to redirect them to a learning goal is probably not going to be successful. So instead introduce it, set a timer, 10 minutes you get to explore, right? Um, then we get kind of a practice round. Maybe then I redirect them to a learning goal and we do something that's not super high stakes. So we're not going to jump right into an assessment, for example. Maybe we just do some sort of little practice round or some formative assessment. Then maybe once we're good, we know what we're doing, we're using that tool well, then I'll redirect them to maybe using it for something that's a little more high stakes, like an assessment. Right. Lindy, if you were, if you were advising a school that said, hey, look, this Zoom thing, you know, kids are just not responding well. Um, we, we, we really want to pivot to one of these social VR platforms and we're going to conduct our synchronous instruction using VR and then we'll have a asynchronous model that's going to be in an LMS. 
what would be, you know, your most valuable consulting advice as they're building the school? What might be the three, three to five points that you would really want to see happen so that the first VR school in the, in the world could, could come to fruition? Well, with anything regarding technology, I always stress consistency and clarity. So there is a ton of research out there about the importance of clarity when it comes to digital learning, but especially when it comes to virtual or online learning. The, you have to make everything as consistent as you possibly can for both the students and the caregivers, right? So, I mean, literally everything down to even naming conventions of how you name assignments or learning tasks that you're giving your students. And it needs to be as consistent across a school as possible. So if I had the brand new school, I'm like, we're going to be the first VR high school. Honestly, that would be one of the first steps I would say is before you do anything, you need to set up these consistent conventions across the school with that learning management system, naming the assignments similarly, having consistent templates for how you outline your assignments, right? Even in the virtual world, starting off very basic and having a similar classroom layout, like each teacher could have their own classroom in a virtual world, but maybe each classroom has a similar feel and layout. Does that make sense? So that when students go into that, they they know, right? And, And then maybe once they get used to it, you could branch out a little bit, but the more consistency, the more organization, the more clarity, the better. That would be one thing I would work with them with. Um, Let me think, what would be another thing? The caregiver communication. You know, I'm assuming if it's a fully virtual high school that students are, are virtual, right? They're probably working from home. So nailing that caregiver communication and support right off the bat and making sure you have lots of supports in place for them and they know where to go when they have a technology issue. What happens when my kid's VR headset won't start or it gets stuck? You know, little simple things like that, having YouTube video playlists with technical support. That would be another. And then my third big one would be developing relationships, right? We, I think every school and every teacher learn how important and absolutely critical developing relationships with students is in a virtual environment. So in order for that new virtual high school to work, um, I would say spend the first week at least of school just on getting to know your students, right? And working in that virtual environment in a very low stakes manner and just getting to know them. Because I think in order for a virtual world to really work in a high school setting, the students in the class would really have to feel a sense of community, right? And they'd have to feel comfortable with each other So building that sense of community, developing those relationships would be kind of, if I had to choose three, my third. (laughs) Those are powerful points, Lindy. If you had a teacher come to you and say, hey, listen, um, I really like the idea of using VR or AR in my classroom, uh, but like all teachers, I'm just profoundly busy. Um, I don't have time to learn Unity. I don't have time to learn C. I, I can't really create my own experiences. I can't do anything that's too involved um, in the creation process. What sort of things are you directing them towards in order to really successfully integrate VR into their classroom or or even just try out a lesson or two in VR as they're getting their feet wet? Great question. There are so many 
basic entry points to virtual reality and using it in your classroom. You do not have to know any coding or software development. I don't know how to use Unity. That's above my skill knowledge. And I do tons of VR, AR stuff. So I would direct that teacher to some, like I mentioned Mozilla Spoke and uh, Frame. Those are two really good, they're web-based. So you can do a lot of it outside <coughs> of the headset. You don't even have to have a headset to do those if you don't want to. So it's very much an entry point into the virtual reality. And then you could slowly transition. Another one is called Gather. And have you ever have you used Gather before? Yeah. It's a little bit like Mozilla Spoke and, or no, sorry, Mozilla Hubs and Frame, but you can actually like build your world. And so you can set, it works by blocks and you build these little blocks. It sounds complicated, but it's not because it's all block-based. It's a little bit like Minecraft, you know? So it's got these big pixels and you can set blocks to do different things. So like these blocks could be a meeting room, right? Where kids could do group work. And then this block can be, you can even add little portals where you can portal from one location of the virtual world to another. Uh, so that's a very, very basic entry point into virtual reality. Uh, let me think of what else. There's lots of others. Uh, I think I, I said Mozilla spoke, but I meant Mozilla hubs, but Mozilla spoke, I will actually talk about now. It's like the next step to Mozilla hubs. You can create the worlds for Mozilla hubs environments. It's pretty basic. I would say it's a like tiny step up from gather, but not much. Um, like you can do it with absolutely no, you don't have to know anything special to build a world in Mozilla spoke. Um, oh, another one that I like to do, and this one's so easy, is actually having teachers and students create 360 images. Uh, so you can take, and I use Google Drawing, but you can use Canva, you can use Paint 3D. I just use Google Drawing because it's really easy to share a template. And you can actually, you set it to what's called a two-to-one aspect ratio. That sounds complicated. It's not. It just means that the width is twice the height of the template. And then there's actually, uh, there's a website, I think it's called Sphere. Don't quote me on that, I have to look it up. And so what you do is you create an image and then you put it into Sphere and it actually wraps the image in 360 and boom, you've created a 360 image, right? Depending upon the headsets that you're in, you can actually put that image into the headsets and view it in 360. So I know the Lenovo VR headsets, you can do that. You just upload the image in there and it automatically wraps it for you. Another thing you can do that's super fun is you can buy a 360 camera, which sounds expensive, but you can get one for, you get a pretty decent one for about three to $400, I would say now, uh, a consumer level, not a professional level, but a consumer sure. level 360 video camera. And you can do so much with that. You can take 360 videos and um, so it's, it sounds complicated. It's not, it's super easy. I found a idea recently to take a 360 camera and you take a box and you put the 360 camera into the box and then you create a scene in the box. So it's like a 360 VR scene, you know, so even little things like that, that you can nice. do that doesn't require any intense um, knowledge or skills. I could probably go on. I've got a huge list of all sorts of these ideas somewhere that I could go on and on in, but that would be my word of advice is you don't have to be high tech. You don't have to know a lot. You don't have to know any special technology or coding skills to get started with VR and AR. 
it's been so exciting to watch that change because I know that, you know, when Adam and I first got involved with VR and education, we were still using the Oculus Rift, which was amazing. But I think, you know, being tethered to the PC, I don't know, there was something intimidating about it to the average teacher. And, you know, what I tell folks now is, you know, your headset will come out of the box. And if you can get your iPhone set up when you get a new iPhone, it's it's super easy to get a headset set up now. There's no tethering to PCs. There's no installing, da 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 da, all that good stuff. Um, switching gears just a little bit, I'm wondering, you know, if you get any questions from school administrators or teachers or parents uh, about privacy issues and about things with data and um, how do you respond to that as we move into this brave new world of teaching in the metaverse. Yes, I do not downplay that at all. That is very real. Uh, we have data privacy laws. States, most states now have a data privacy law. So make sure that you know that. I always say, go talk to your technology director, your school technology director. You should have someone, no matter how small of a school you are nowadays, that helps you with that, whether they're an in-house person or a third-party consulting firm that helps you with technology, talk to them. They should have a pretty good idea about your state data privacy laws, and they can really help inform you of what things to look out for. It's a super complex topic, but in general, and I have a whole chapter on this in my book, by the way, that's how much there is to know about this. But sure. the big things to know is if you have to input student information into a tool, then you need to make sure that that tool follows your state, local, wh whatever data privacy laws you have, most likely state. But there are some schools that have their own data privacy laws too. That's why I say local, um, because it depends on what that tool does with the, that student information. So the good thing about VR is that depending upon the tool that you're using, it completely depends on the tool in the app. If you're using a more consumption-based tool or app, there probably isn't anywhere where you have to have your students input information. They're just, they're consuming, right? So you're probably okay in terms of that. But let's say you try to use co-spaces. Oh, that's another one I didn't mention as a very entry-level point. VR creator tool, very entry-level, very, very entry-level. You know, you have to have an account to create co-spaces. So that would be something you would want to make sure, like, is CoSpaces okay for me to use? Does it follow my state data privacy laws? There is actually a really good website. It's called the, um, it's SDPC. I think it's just State Data Privacy Consortium. I think that's what it stands for. If you look that up, you should find the website. And not every state is a member, but a lot of states are a member of the SDPC. Montana is, for example. And then you can actually go to, they have a little search bar and you go and you find your state and then you can actually find the tools that have signed like your state's data privacy agreement. So that's part of the consortium is each state that's a member has one basically contract that the state has agreed upon that if a tool signs this contract, they are good to go with your state data privacy laws. All you have to do then is your school signs it. So your tech director or superintendent, whoever is in charge of signing that, and they just upload the contract. And now your school is in compliance with that tool. So that's a really great way to just figure out um, what tools. And it, you might find, okay, there's a tool that I want to use 
it's listed. Other schools in my state have signed this contract, but my school hasn't. All you have to do, go to your tech director and say, hey, look, we just need to get this signed so I can use this tool. And then you'll be in compliance with your data privacy laws. That's kind of going in the weeds. I didn't know if that makes any sense at all, but it, it is very important. Sense. And Absolutely. it's important for teachers to understand that nowadays, for sure. Tremendous. Makes perfect sense. So this is the point in the show where we are at our Furious Five and uh, Ryan is uh, always kicks us off with our Furious Five. These are five questions that don't have anything to do with anything we've talked about, but they're kind of get to know you questions. I and like so without, it. without further ado, Ryan, let's uh, jump into the Furious Five. All right. I have a few fallback Furious Five questions that I always come back to, but I also have a few that I try to tailor to the individual. So We'll start off here. You live in Montana. And of course, one of the great movie moments of the 1990s was in the hunt for Red October when uh, the Russian naval officer, as he's dying, looked at his captain in the eyes and said, I would have liked to have seen Montana and then passes away. If someone were to visit Montana before they die, what's one thing that they have to see in Montana? Oh, that's easy. Glacier National Park. So everybody always talks about Yellowstone. Uh, Yellowstone's amazing and beautiful, although most of Yellowstone's in Wyoming, but there is some of it in Montana. Everybody thinks of Yellowstone when they think of Montana. Love Yellowstone. It's great. But Glacier National Park is amazing. The view. Wintertime or summertime? Oh, you have to go in the summer. You can only go in the summer. Is it is back it, part it, of it? The park's doesn't... closed for the winter? Is it like yeah. that? Yeah. Well, you can maybe go into like the very beginning of each side of the park, but the going to the sun road, which is what you want to do that goes from one side to the other is only open from like mid-June to end of September, like basically till it starts okay. going. Again, yeah. So there's a pretty small window of when you have to go. But Got it. Got it. Okay. What is your favorite movie of all time? Oh my gosh. Oh, that's a toughie. I don't know if I can pick a favorite movie of all time. <laughs> you can give us a top two or three if you need What's to. your favorite movie of recent time? Oh, of recent time. Let me think. Um, you know, the movie that I really like and I'll watch over and over again, my husband doesn't understand why, is uh, Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey. Of course. It blows my mind so much. I can watch it 10 times and I still don't fully understand it because it's all of the space time physics sure. stuff and I don't get it. I do love that movie. That's a movie that I always judge favorite movies by. Will I watch it over and over and never get sick of it? And so that that's one I can come up with. I love that movie. And that, that's a fantastic choice because to me that uh, that's the brilliance of uh, Christopher Nolan and Matthew McConaughey both right there in a nutshell, right? Fantastic mm -hmm. choice. Um, what is the best meal that you've eaten recently? Ooh, let me think. Okay, so uh, hopefully there's no vegetarians and vegans on here that are going to get offended by this. But last night... <laughs> okay, we've offended them many times ourselves. It's all good. <laughs> I'm not meaning to offend. Last night, I actually had duck for the first time ever. I never oh, nice. had duck. And it was very good. It's a lot like pork. Like it has a very similar sure. texture to pork. So we made this crazy meal. We actually had a HelloFresh meal that was duck that we had ordered. So we didn't work too hard at that. But my garden is just getting... Uh, where it's actually producing stuff right now. So we made that duck and then I made these squash blossoms stuffed with goat cheese and a bunch of other nice. stuff, fancy stuff from my garden. So it was pretty nice. darn good. That was just last night. <laughs> That's awesome. 
what is your favorite book of all time, other than, of course, A Teacher's Guide to Online Learning, <laughs> Practical Strategies to Improve K-12 Student Engagement? And I was going to say, dang it, can I, can I listen to one? <laughs> you can. Oh, let me think, let me think. One you of know, our I'm favorite not... books here at Red <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I am a big fan of, uh, I think you say, I think you say your name, Jody Picot. I think it's French. Picot, it's spelled P-I-C-O-U-L-T. And any, I can't even name one, but any book of hers, I always love. And I always get sucked into and read in like two days because I can't put it down. Right now I'm reading one of her newer ones. It's called The Book of Two Ways. And it's pretty good so far. I haven't finished it. Nice. Yeah. Nice. The last question of the Furious Five, we like to call the contrarian question, and it's really Adam's question. So at this point in the show, I always pass the mic back over to him. Adam? Lindy, what do you know to be true about online learning that other educational technologists might disagree with you on? Oh, that's a toughie. Um... You know, I think I'll go back to my point about consistency and clarity. I th think that's a piece that's really missing from virtual and online and remote learning. But like I said, there's so much, so much research behind how important that is. And sometimes I get a teachers, tech integration people, anyone that will kind of, when I say like, you need to be consistent across a school and they'll look at me like, what? That's not possible. We can't do that. I'm like, but you need to right? It's, it's what needs to happen for students and caregivers. So I'll go with that one. I have a whole chapter on it in my book. That's how much I, you know, I it's, fantastic it's, answer. It's, it's interesting when I was being trained as a teacher, um, you know, 17 years ago, um, the, the person who was training me said, you need three things. You need clarity, consistency, and authority. And it's mm -hmm. just so funny. That works the same way in the metaverse. I mean, back now, well, it's Clarity, true. When you think about it, especially with elementary, elementary teachers are very much into routine, right? Yeah. Middle school and high school teachers too, but I don't think as much as elementary teachers. Not nearly as much routine. for sure. Yeah. yeah. It depends on the teacher in elementary or in middle school and high school, but I don't know a single elementary teacher that's not into routines. Like we do this, we line up here. This is how we start the day, right? It's the same concept, but just move it digital and everything in your digital space needs to be routine. That's a really good way to think about it. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. Lindy, we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast tonight. It's been such a pleasure and honor speaking to you. Um, where can our listeners find you on social media? And of course, how can they order your book? Yeah, so I have everything on my website. So it's integratedpd.org. So I-N-T-E-C-H graded. So kind of a play on integrated. Integrated and then P is in professional, D is in development.org. They're linked to my social, all my social medias, my Twitter, my LinkedIn, all of that are on there. Uh, link to my, there's a whole page about my book and you can download a free chapter, by the way, the chapter on supporting parents, you can download for free on my website as well. There's a link to buy the, the book on Amazon. Right now I have the ebook on Amazon and very soon we'll have the print book in both paperback and hardback available. Um, and yeah, there's even a link there on my website. You can even book a time just if you want to chat with me. You can book a time right on my calendar via my Calendly link. So yeah, that is the best way to get a hold of me and learn more about me. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Uh, we really enjoyed chatting with you and we hope we get to do it again soon. Awesome. Thank you. Linda, you're amazing. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.